This is the Wild Card Speaks. You're much too cool for me. I'm Chris with a K. Welcome to The Wild Card Speaks, redefining the games you thought you knew. We are officially on episode two. Thank you so much to everyone who listened, liked, and supported episode one. I got a lot of amazing feedback from you awesome people in listener land, and I want to take a moment to address some of it. One of the major things I heard was that I didn't give enough background on myself. Not a problem. Like I've said, I'm a personal trainer, massage therapist, and fitness nutrition specialist. I've done my 200-hour yoga teacher training, and I love to meditate. All the things I do for a living are a direct result of a need I had in life. I grew up in Athens, Georgia with my mother and two brothers. Yes. Yes, it is true what they say. I do have middle child syndrome. And yes, we are the loving, brilliant ones who get completely ignored. It's cool, though. It's cool. I'm not bitter. I spent summers here in Atlanta with my father and another brother and sister. My yoga meditation journey began the summer after my senior year of high school. Pretty soon after graduation, I fell into a deep depression. It wasn't long before I was diagnosed with chronic depression and was placed on medication. The medication did nothing but make the depression worse. It was a struggle to get out of bed every day. When I did get out of bed, it was a struggle to be around people. When I was around people, it was yet another struggle to get along with them. I couldn't understand why this was happening or what was happening. I was really confused. I went from always laughing and socializing and being with my friends to whatever was going on at the time. Just to give you a tiny bit of understanding on what I was experiencing at the time, right now I'd like for everyone to make a tight circle with each hand and place them to your eyes like glasses so that you can see through them. That narrowed, darkened view was both what my life looked like to me and what my life or what my heart felt like. I can't say that I've ever been a person to just accept what I'm handed, especially if I didn't like what it was. And in this instance, there was no difference. There was no deviation from that. Um, I just wanted to feel happy and sane again. So I dug a little deeper. I'd read somewhere that yoga helped with depression. So I dumped the pills and sought out a studio. Back then, there weren't many yoga studios in Athens, but I found one and signed up. There, I learned how to meditate, and now both yoga and meditation are huge parts of my life. These days, I stay pretty even uh, most of the time, but if too many things hit me at once, uh, I can get a little more down than others may. But... I tend to bounce back pretty quickly. Thankfully, because of yoga and meditation, I've only had one episode of long-lasting deep depression since I was 18. Yoga and meditation literally saved my life. My father felt that I needed to learn self-sufficiency, so he made me pay for college myself. Not wanting to be a broke college student, I 
took up massage as a trade before heading to school. After two years of college, I realized that I didn't like the direction that I was going in, so I decided to do massage full time. I had truly fallen in love with massage and I still am in love with massage, so I'm happy with my decision. Fast forward to 26 years old and I found out that I had diabetes due to being overweight. I was calmly freaking out, to say the least. It took two weeks of taking the diabetes medication metformin before I pulled it together and decided that that wouldn't be my fate. Once again, I dumped the pills. Like I said, I've never been a person to just accept what I'm handed. I set out on my weight loss journey immediately and lost 98 pounds in nine months, strictly through diet and exercise. I fell in love with fitness and everything surrounding fitness. I got certified in personal training and fitness nutrition. I began writing about fitness and health for a national magazine and training people. I also worked with professional athletes, mostly from the Falcons, but also the Texans, Redskins, Jets, Dolphins, and 49ers. Things were going amazingly well, but... Remember that second bout of deep, long-lasting depression I spoke about earlier? Yep, my part-time, twisted little mind got the best of me. Being so busy, I began slacking on my meditation to the point that a whole year passed and I didn't meditate at all. So I was completely mentally and emotionally vulnerable when a few normal ripples in life happened that challenged me. I fell right on in that void I left in myself the one that meditation usually filled. I became depressed for a solid year. It took another year to rebuild my life just with normal things. A new job, apartment, car, new friends, and ultimately a new path. All things I lost during that year of depression. It took yet another year for me to become truly happy again. To forgive myself for losing it all, to appreciate the journey, and to build Zenletics Global, the company that is to become my empire and legacy. Zenletics Global is a wellness company providing both services and entertainment. This very podcast, as well as a soon to be released TV series and book, comprise the entertainment side. Massage, a continuing education program for trainers and all bodywork therapists, and consultation services for both trainers and the general populace comprise the service side. People tell me all the time that I can't do it all. It's too much. But to that I say, you just can't see what I see. I don't, I don't have to do it all. I see it all. So it's done. I just got to step into the vision and flow. My ultimate goal is to empower people to take their health into their own hands. Pharmaceuticals absolutely have their place in healthcare. I'm not somebody who would completely discount that. But I will say that most of the people who have chronic illnesses and who are on pharmaceutical pills have something that's preventable and reversible. 
just from my experience in being a massage therapist and a trainer. I was one of them. I had diabetes. The problem isn't that it can't be done. It's that you won't do it. My goal is to help people to understand that it's a waste of time to get mad at me right now for speaking on it. Especially because I don't care about your anger. I care about you, the individual. Denial is a waste of time. So is shame, guilt, apathy, or irritation. All a waste of time. The only emotion worth your time when it comes to determining what your health is going to be right now is your determination. Just get up and get it done. Woo! That got serious really quick. Sorry, guys. Love you. Anyways. This is round two for me to build the empire I was on my way to before depression kind of took over my life. In light of that, the main topic of this episode is also about round two. A professional boxer who used the lessons he learned during the battle of his life against cancer to come out on the other side with elevated success and a story that inspires people around the world. Okay, so my name is Daniel Jacobs. I come from a very small section of Brooklyn, New York called Brownsville. I had a great time interviewing Daniel Jacobs about his triumphs and his legacy. But before we get more into his story, let's take a break and come back with my segment, The Fuck Is Up With Sports. I'll be right back. Are you a professional or aspiring photographer who needs specialty software to take your photos to the next level? Fix the Photo has a la carte Photoshop editing tools to help. Whether to fix the lighting on wedding photos so that you don't upset the beautiful bride or to enhance the color on unique landscape shots. Fix the Photo even has presets to help your staged real estate properties pop. Visit fixthephoto.com slash Global to download your editing tools to take your photos from great to amazing. That's fixthephoto.com slash Global. Fixthephoto.com slash Z-E-N-L-E-T-I-C-S-G-L-O-B-A-L dot com. I'm back. It's time for... The fuck is up with sports? I just have a few things for you this week. Up first, former Warriors player Steven Jackson is publicly mourning the loss of George Floyd, whom he called, quote, twin. He went off on Denver Nuggets player Michael Porter, who tweeted that people should pray for Floyd's family and for the officers. <laughs> Funny. He called him a, quote, privileged youngin and told him to, quote, pick a side. Colin Kaepernick has also spoken about his stance, calling for a revolution. He stated, quote, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction, end quote. On May 25th, George Floyd, who was originally from Houston, was, late, was a laid-off security guard in Minneapolis after the governor issued a stay-at-home order due to COVID. That day, a store employee called the cops on him after he tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. 
using unnecessary force, Officer Derek Chauvin or Chauvin choked Floyd to death by pressing his knee into his neck. Over a counterfeit 20, he was unarmed. This was a nonviolent crime and he didn't resist. And it was never proven the money was actually counterfeit. <sighs> Yet another black man murdered by the hand by hateful cops. I'm not surprised at this point. In a country where there have to be laws that tell one group of people that another group of people are humans and deserve human rights, something that's obvious and logical to anyone rational, this incident is, yes, a shock to the heart, a cringe to the eyes, but a yawn to the system. I don't mean to say that in a dismissive way. I'm outraged just like my brothers and sisters out there who know for a fact that black lives matter. I just mean to illustrate with words and the emotion behind them that I am exhausted. Mayor Jacob Frey called for the officers to be brought to justice in a press conference where he fake cried. He said, quote, being black in America shouldn't be a death sentence, end quote. <sighs> right. I'm just curious which blog he read that from on his phone right before he hit the stage. What are you crying for? If this is a surprise to you, you're part of the problem. I'm cynical and I won't apologize for it. It's a defense mechanism built up from years of disappointment and watching the justice system fail us time and time again. But from the looks of things, there will be no peaceful protests this time. Riots have broken out all across the country, not just in protest of the death of George Floyd, but also in protest of all those who came before him, and rightfully so. And to those who say, don't riot, don't riot, to that I say, you cannot cut off my leg and then score me for how I mourn about it. Well, it looks like Floyd Mayweather will be a judge for a huge celebrity boxing match set for the end of June in Las Vegas. The fight will be a charity event to raise money for COVID-19. Meanwhile, just a few days before this publicity announcement, Mayweather hosted a very large, reportedly very wild party in Arizona. No social distancing was observed, neither were masks worn. Loves, I understand we're all a little stir-crazy from being in the house for the past few months, but the truth of the matter is we should all still be in the house. I just feel like this lockdown ended too soon, which means we'll have to do another one and for a longer period of time when this national impatience and, to be honest, disregard for each other comes back to bite us. Listen, just because you're not sick doesn't mean you're not a carrier. Just because people are saying it's a hoax doesn't mean that it is. How do you say that to the mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, sons and daughters, grandmothers and grandfathers across the world who are losing each other? I mean, they're not dropping off for no reason. There's something out there killing people. Let's be smart about this, you guys. More so, please more so, than the orange goop feigning humanity and living in the White House. Alright, that aside, I do feel like that uh, the future of 
public gatherings, clubbing, hangouts, sporting events, and other things are, are going to be changed forever. But what do you guys think? Do you think that uh, future gatherings are going to be different than they have been? Or you think that things are going to go back to business as usual? Send your thoughts, comments, and questions to thewildcardspeaks at gmail.com. This week's Rabbit Bag is the most adorable thing that I've seen in quite a while. OKC Thunder posted a video on Twitter of point guard Russell Westbrook warming up next to his very tiny 18-month-old son. It took my heart. The little guy, Noah, looks as though he's just starting to walk and already trying to dunk. But with each try, he only succeeds in pushing himself on the floor of the court. Oh my God, it was so cute. He looks so confused each time, like, why is this happening? I just want to dunk this ball. (laughs) I watched this video like 50 times. It was so heartwarming. At one point, Russell Westbrook made a hoop out of his arms and just let his son dunk the ball into that. But it was just so cute. The video is old, but really sweet. You can find it at OKC Thunder on Twitter. Okay, guys, let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back for my interview with boxer Daniel Jacobs. Welcome back, loves. It's time for... Daniel Jacobs has had 39 fights, 36 wins, 30 knockouts, and he's a two-time middleweight world champion, having held the IBF title from 2018 to 2019 and the WBA title from 2014 to 2017. Nicknamed the Miracle Man, Jacobs' career was almost cut short in 2011 due to to osteosarcoma, a rare form of bone cancer. But he triumphed, coming back for round two at life in a huge way. Here's Daniel Jacobs. Okay, so my name is Daniel Jacobs. I come from a very small section of Brooklyn, New York called Brownsville. And this particular section was one of the uh, worst neighborhoods in all of New York City at the time, especially in the early 90s, um, where, you know, I've pretty much seen a lot on the streets from gang activities to, uh, you know, drug abuse um, to family abuse, domestic violence, so much. Uh, a kid really at that age it's kind of hard to endure it was kind of normal at that time um, so growing up it kind of gave me somewhat of a tough skin and just used to uh, well this reality that I've seen that was created kind of made it my norm you know and uh, it wasn't until I turned nine years old that I went to a program called the Fresh Air Fund 
and the Fresh Air Fund is a program where you have inner city kids who inner city kids who come and they stay with the family or they go to a camp uh, and they stay for a couple of weeks. Uh, and this particular uh, time I went, I went and I stayed with a family in Rhode Island, a Caucasian family, and uh, they showed me so much difference in what life had to offer. And for me, it was uh, it was a phenomenal experience. But uh, most importantly, I think it was the uh, kind of what I took from it and what I was able to see from just seeing everything that wasn't my norm. I got a chance to see that there was more to life and, um, you know, there's more pleasantries in life than uh, where I was from and what I was used to, you know, so. Uh, and I got a chance to see, you know, so many different things. And when I got home back in New York, my life just, my, not only my life, but just my mind uh, expanded. And from that point on, I, I knew that there was more in life uh, and, and I was going to get it. So I was determined from that point. I became a teenager, still going through the uh, obvious and normal circumstances, which my um, my community bred at that time, um, and then became 14 years old and going through a very troubled school system. Uh, I ran into a uh, a bully who, uh, at the time, was probably the, <laughs> the most vicious kid in the school. And uh, every week it was a different kid that he bullied. And this one particular week, I remember it was my turn and. Uh, you know, for some re strange reason, even though I was somewhat of a, a softy and a, a mama's boy and was scared of, of violence and, you know, friction or any, of any sort, I was just a calm kid. Uh, so, but in that moment, I just stood up for myself and uh, we fought, you know, and um, we both got in trouble. We both faced the consequences of our actions. Obviously, we got troubled by our parents, but we got suspended too. So it was like a blow to me because, you know, um, to be taken away from school, you know, it was kind of hard being considered, you know, that bad of a kid staying home, you know. Uh, so I just remember um, when I finally got back to school, we learned that uh, the same kid who I had the issues with, um, was going down to like a local boxing gym and he's been going down there for a while so I said hmm you know this is an interesting situation you know because here it is I want to get my revenge even though I'm not like the confrontational type uh, but I couldn't go to school and fight him again because obviously I was face the same consequences so I uh, just remember uh, learning uh, of his, you know, uh, training situation. And then I went down and I signed up myself and um, I went down there with the intentions to learn how to fight only to, excuse me, learn how to box only to, uh, to box this kid and to be out or to at least go to school with a, you know, new reputa uh, rep reputation that, you know, I can defend myself and I'm not gonna let nobody pick on me, so. Uh, went down and you know we told the trainer what, what was what was going on and what we were trying to do and uh, I'll probably say two and a half three weeks later 
he let us in the ring, and uh, I really, really, really starched this kid. Um, it was, to me, like unbelievable because the amount of fear that I faced when we were in school versus the confidence that I faced or that I had and that was instilled in me that just from glowing inside that ring and it was weird because I wasn't really a fighting kid but I beat the kid up and uh, he never returned uh, from that point on but for me I stuck with it because not only did I find out I was good because it kind of came natural but I actually love just the whole atmosphere you know I love the grittiness I love the fact that I didn't know anything about boxing and that I could learn a trade. Um, I also wanted to keep myself off the streets because, uh, you know, my neighborhood at that time, too, provided a lot of options for kids to get into trouble. So I just wanted to avoid that. Um, and moving forward with the boxing situation, uh, you know, I didn't really think that I would turn out to be anything, but, you know, my first eight months into boxing, uh, I won my first national championship and uh, I was 15 years old and uh, for anyone who knows anything about boxing you know a national championship at any level um, when you first sign on for the first couple months is hard let alone you know it being your very first tournament so I knew I had something special and I, yeah, I wanted to harvest it uh, and I wanted to see exactly how far I could take it, not even thinking about the professional world or becoming a world champion, more so just learning the craft. Like, it was intriguing to me to learn exactly how to um, carry myself, conduct myself, um, learn uh, just the little tricks. Because at that time, too, Mike Tyson was a neighborhood hero. He comes from the same exact... Uh, location that I come from in Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York. So for me to learn a craft that our neighborhood hero uh, shared was to me it was like incredible. So uh, I proceeded to um, go into uh, the boxing ranks and climb the ranks and just excel. Um, it was shocking to me just how uh, fast everything took off. And at that point, for my first national championship um, that I won, I was able to fly and travel to so many different places um, throughout the country. Um, from the age of, you know, 15 uh, years old to about 16, 17 years old. And then... Uh, as I started to excel more, I started to go internationally. So I was able to see the world by the age of uh, 18 years old. Um, and it was, to me, such an incredible, humbling, uh, motivating, and just all-around phenomenal experience because where I came from um, versus what I was able to obtain, even that, a teenage age, you know, a teenage in my teenage years, for me was incredible. So um, it came a point where, um, as I was juggling school uh, and 
football actually at that time because um, I went to school for football. Football was like my first passion. But um, it came a point in time where I had to choose uh, either or. And um, it was a particular play that my football team had that the quarterback decided to run the ball and he got sacked and we lost the game and I was like in the end zone waving my hands like, you know, um, I'm open, you know, and we lost. It was the saddest thing ever because I hate losing. And uh, I said from that point on, I'm going to choose a sport that I can be the sole dictator of the outcome and uh, boxing was my full focus. Do you feel that maybe part of that decision to choose boxing over football had to do with wanting to mimic the control and stability that maybe you felt was lacking in your life at that time? 100%. I would say um, I chose to be in an individual sport solely because I wanted to not only have my hand raised in victory, but there's a certain glory that you get um, when you know you're the you're the reason why you've won. Boxing was never my plans to be a, become a professional. So the furthest that I thought was that I wanted to go to Olympics. So the Olympics was everything to me. Uh, even being in like the fifth grade, I remember pushing the TV into the classroom and like, put the television on for all the students and we all were watching the Olympics and I just seen like the the unity I seen the competitiveness of all nations and it was just so intriguing so I always loved the idea of the Olympics uh, but fast forward um, having my chance to uh, partake in the Olympics wasn't something that was far-fetched it started to become more and more of a reality to me and at the age of I believe 18 or 19, um, uh, I, I made it all the way to the Olympic trials and uh, I actually became an Olympic alternate. So I lost in the finals and, you know, one of those situations where the person who is an Olympian, uh, if they, you know, injury or something happens, they can't make it, then you take their place. But uh, for me, not being able to make the actual team to go to the Olympics was probably one of the hardest experiences that I had to deal with, but um, it was a blessing in disguise, too, because uh, fast forward, uh, you know, I was able to turn professional right thereafter. For clarity, Daniel is saying that he went pro around 2005-2006, Pro boxers weren't allowed to compete in the Olympics until 2016. The Olympics were reserved for amateur boxers. Uh, I had, like, such a buzz. I mean, to me, it reminds me of when LeBron James came out of high school and uh, he was just such a hot commodity and everyone wanted him and everyone was just, you know, wanting that next big star. Uh, so I kind of got like the first wave of all the professional managers and promoters and 
just uh, everyone in that community that was aware of me and turning pro, just wanting me and to have some form of connection. So it was a great thing for me. I beat the Olympics team to uh, pursue my dreams. Uh, while they all went off to the Olympics, I took my talents to the professional ranks and I was able to, to you know, do tremendous things um, at such an early age and become, you know, prospect of the year my first year out. And, you know, I moved all the way up to 16, 17, 18 and 0 before I had my first world title opportunity. And this was in the course of two and a half years of being professional. So we were really on a fast pace. And that first opportunity I had to become a world titleist, which was uh, my first world title opportunity, um, I had faced one of the um, most heartfelt, tremendous, painful experiences that I could have faced in all my life. It seems obvious, but I'd like for you to elaborate on how the loss of your grandmother affected your performance in your upcoming fight. You know, my grandmother for me was, she was my mom, you know, she was my nurturer, she was my protector, she was the woman who just gave me that unconditional love that, you know, every child just gravitates towards. And I had lost her a week prior to my professional fight for my first world title championship. And it took so, you know, it took a toll on me. It took so, so much out of me mentally, physically. Uh, and, I, and I lost that title fight, just not being able to mentally be in the game and um, not actually being able to really um, grieve the death of you know, the closest person to me. And um, I took from that whole experience, I took some knowledge from that loss and, you know, I learned from that whole ordeal and we was able to know that mentally you have to be all the way wrapped and all the way 100% before you can enter the ring. Because even though boxing is a very mental, um, it's a very physical sport, um, it's mostly mental, and um, knowing that, you just have to make sure that before every bout, you just you can sustain any physical or mental blow. And uh, moving forward, we was able to just achieve a lot of more accolades after the loss. We bounced back, and we became uh, one of the hottest stars again in the sport of boxing. And um, you know, we was able to face some of the biggest stars in the sport of boxing. Janadi Golovkin, Canelo Alvarez, Cesar Chavez Jr., um, Sergey Dervianchenko, Peter Kitchocolate Quillen, a couple other guys that are former world champions and current world champions that are still thriving in the sport that I got a chance to share the ring with. And all of that whole process of, you know, me becoming uh, the next big thing or the current, you know, superstar, um, I faced one of the toughest challenges uh, in or out the ring that I could have faced. In um, 2011, uh, I was struck with 
osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer. And um, I remember after a particular bout, um, me and a couple of world champion boxers went over uh, to the Middle East, actually. We went overseas and uh, we went on a USO tour where we did an exhibition for some of the uh, soldiers and we got a chance to bond and connect with the soldiers, which is at that time was such a phenomenal experience. And um, we took so much from that, just being in Baghdad and Iraq and so many of those Middle Eastern countries, we got a chance to really, you know, touch the ground and see what that life was like for those soldiers over there, which was a very humbling experience. But upon my arrival back, I I noticed that uh, I become I became very very weak in my lower legs, and um, you know normally after fights, fighters tend to not be as strong as they typically are when they're in training. Uh, so I just kind of thought that that was what going on with my body, and my body was just like kind of not as strong as it typically is. So just remember, every day would get weak and weak and weak, and I was saying something that's just not right. And it didn't take for me uh, trying to actually ride my bike to the gym that I kept missing the, the pedal. And the timing of the pedal was off. Normally, there's a smooth flow between the timing of when you pedal, but I just couldn't get it. And it was very awkward and very weird. And even though I didn't feel no pain at the time, I just knew something was wrong. So uh, I I remember going to the doctor shortly thereafter, and the doctor said I I had a pinched nerve. And, uh, you know, he gave me some prescription pills and told me that I'd be okay over time, just take those pills. And uh, I noticed after a week, I started to take those pills. Nothing happened. In fact, it actually got worse. It was uh, one of those situations where my, my nerves were so bad and the weakness in my legs was so severe that I started to use a cane. And then a week later, a cane turned into uh, crutches. A couple of days after that, crutches turned into a walker. And, you know, lastly, I'd probably say maybe a week after, finally, it did, it, I was in a wheelchair, you know. And throughout this whole process, I'm taking these pills thinking that I'll be okay. And uh, definitely wasn't working out for me. But as a man or or as just as a male with the mentality sometimes that we have, we you know, didn't really want to go to the hospital and really check things out, and we wanted to probably be a little too lenient on the fact that, um, you know, we're going to be okay. Because I think um, the idea of us being kids, we always had this super, superman mentality where we never could be ill or we never could be affected by anything. So, But at that point where I was in a wheelchair, I knew that I was helpless and that I needed some more attention. I needed to seek some more help. There have been studies that show that doctors tend to um, gloss over um, or misdiagnose uh, people of color often um, when they come 
into the office complaining about different symptoms. Did you feel like in this experience that that's what happened to you, that maybe the doctor didn't really listen to what was really going on with you? 100%. I definitely felt like they uh, definitely didn't treat me well, uh, care for me well, rather. I took. I felt like they misdiagnosed me. Uh, more yeah. dismissive than anything? Definitely way more dismissive than anything. I mean, I was in and I was out. You know, I didn't even get an MRI. I got an X-ray, mm. you know, which doesn't show any not neurological uh, anything, especially the damage that I was receiving at that time. I mean, the tumor was growing every day. Mm. So, I mean, literally, I could have died and it was from a misdiagnosed and uh, improper care from, from the hospital. Uh, so we went to the hospital, a different hospital, and uh, they were able to really see what was going on after giving me a MRI. And this MRI revealed that I had a tumor the size of a handball uh, that was wrapped around uh, my spinal cord. And the reason why I had paralysis at that time, or partial paralysis, was because uh, it was take the tumor was taking all of the nerves away from um, it was circuit, it was uh, suffocating all of the nerves that was wrapped around my spine. So uh, they learned that's why I was paralyzed, and um, I came into the hospital on a Thursday. Excuse me, on a Friday, and they said um, I told them that I was going to come in on a Monday because. It was a Friday and it was nice out even though I couldn't walk. I just didn't want to go to the hospital because I wanted to enjoy the weekend before I find out what my fate is because clearly I'm paralyzed. Uh, and they said, good thing you came in when you did because at the rate, speed that your tumor was growing, you would probably die because your heart uh, wouldn't have been able to uh, endure that. So... I was just blown away. And um, when I learned that the tumor would have to be taken out, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking that, you know, I can bounce back, you know, a couple months, I'll be back. But, you know, they said that it was cancerous. They said that I had to get, like, uh, radiation and I had to learn how to walk again. I had to go through all of these different therapy treatments, which took at least six months of just everyday constant trying to do things that I knew uh, would work for me or that they told me would work for me. But they told me, too, after me before I left the hospital, they told me that um, uh, they broke it down to me. They you know put me in a room full of doctors at this round table and... Um, just remember, you know, talking to about four doctors, and uh, they was just like, you know, you know, boxing is definitely out of the question. You're never going to be able to box again, and you know, you're definitely going to have to find something else to do with your life. And that was the phew, the craziest thing that I've ever heard. I mean, it just it couldn't sink inside. It's just one of. I mean, I remember <laughs> just when the doctors told me that, it was like Charlie Charlie Brown after. It was like, wah, 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 wah. He was like, you're not going to box again. Wah, 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 wah. So it was just like a blur. 
but I, I remember in the back of my mind just, you know, always believing that there was a chance, you know. So throughout the course of my therapy and, you know, like I said, learning how to walk again, um, going to their therapist and, you know, I was so weak I couldn't even lift a dumbbell at the time. So I had to physically get my strength again uh, at 225 pounds leaving the hospital, um, I was faced with, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And, um, you know, doctor's orders was to stay out of the gym and that boxing was done. So what am I going to do? Um, but one thing that I'm grateful for is the mindset of a fighter, the mindset of a boxer. And, uh, that is one of a person who never gives up. That is one of a person who, um, you know, always wanting to be the sole dictator, dictator of their future, their legacy, whatever it is that they sought out, their goals, you know. And for me, I just, even though the doctors told me, and we know doctors are pretty much like, you know, gods in a sense where their word is everything. And, you know, most people believe that their word is final. But I wanted to have the final word, and um, I took my... <laughs> myself to the gym you know upon you know against doctor's orders and everyone looked at me like I was crazy because they knew my circumstance and they knew that you know it was the most dangerous thing that I could possibly be doing especially you know having my spine be put back together and having these titanium rods in my back and you know still learning how to really get the cusp of walking again um when I first entered the gym, you know, I had uh, a back brace and I had cane in my hand. You know, my walking was getting better, but it still wasn't quite there. Uh, and I just remember just, you know, throwing my little one-twos on a bag and it took me about maybe <laughs> 30 minutes, which was my workout was. And I was happy with that because I was in my environment and my element that which brought me the most happiness. So... I would say two weeks into the gym, uh, my 30 minutes turned into 45 minutes, which led to an hour and so on and so forth. And uh, I did that for you know a couple months until I was really able to get the rhythm of things. And at the same time, I still was doing my radiation treatments, but um, you know, my final radiation treatment is when I told myself that I was going to be 100% to making a comeback. And, um, you know, having everything against me, whether it was the doctor's orders, whether it was, you know, even some of my team doubting me or even believing that I could not uh, obtain the impossible. Uh, so I had so many different things that, you know, I had to face. And for me, being a kid from Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, always... Um, getting the short end of the stick or, you know, never having things easy. Um, I just took that out as another challenge and I continued to push myself and believe in myself. I mean, obviously doubt throughout that entire process crept in uh, at times, but I was able to uh, get control of it because, you know, what brings you ultimate happiness is knowing that, um, you know, there's nothing that you can't do, that you're fearless and that especially no one can set the outcome of your life. 
you know, your life is in your hands and for the most part it's unpredictable. So for someone to have it mapped out for you, it's it's not easy for one to accept and you know, my mentality, I'm a fighter, not gonna accept it. So moving forward, uh, I was definitely back in a place where I was getting the rhythm of things with boxing and um, I told myself that if I can go through a series of sparring sessions that I would definitely, you know, talk to my managers and my boxing community again to let them know where I stood and I was successful with that. And um, I told myself that the only process now was really just to get cleared by my doctors that was the hard part because uh, it's like a year and a half, two years later, I went back to get cleared from the doctor and uh, they just was looking at me. First off, they was looking at me in, in, in astonishment because they couldn't understand just how in physical shape I was and just how um, I presented myself. And I just was like a miracle in the, like in full flesh because they was just like, wait a second, like, you know, you're not even supposed to be walking properly, let alone be in this great shape and be trying to get proved to box. So, you know, went through that whole process. I was grateful and fortunate enough to be uh, passed by my doctors and get a pass from all the physicians in the boxing community to be able to, you know, to partake in boxing again. And it was at the best time that I was approved because uh, the Barclays Center, which is in Brooklyn, New York, our very first stadium that we had in the last, you know, 25 years um, was opening at the time that I was just now coming back. So it was perfect and uh, got in contact with my team and they put me on a card and I was able to make my comeback. And it was the greatest experience of my career because it was so heartfelt based off of all my trials and tribulations and things that I had to endure to get to that point of truly just wanting to, you know, take control of my happiness. Um, and we won, you know, first round knockout. Uh, fans were going crazy. And from that point, the fans started calling me the Miracle Man uh, because everyone learned of my story. I mean, me coming back from cancer, uh, taking control of my life and my career was very inspiring. Uh, for people throughout the world, especially the boxing community. So it was very, it was like the biggest story that hit the, the sport in such a long time. Were you surprised that so many people were so influenced by your story? It was unbelievable. So, um, but I've been dealing with this for the last. Well, I'm 33 and 33 years now, so at least the last 10 years, and it's it's been an unbelievable experience. But I mean, I knew it was motivating and inspiring, but not to the magnitude of what the world showed me. I mean, it was like on a whole nother level. I mean, I was like on every news channel. I was like doing like so many different interviews throughout the world. I mean, people from all over the world literally would be in my inbox, like telling me how much I inspire them and how much they look up to me, or they shared my story or my documentary with their family member or mom or whoever. 
it had motivated them or it uplift them or so many different things. I mean, it, it, it's truly unreal because it, it, me being a very humble guy coming from where I come from, I never thought that a guy from Brooklyn, New York would have an opportunity. I mean, yeah, to be a fighter because, you know, I was good as a teen, so I already, you know, processed that. But to, to have someone older than me, you know, a, a mature, older elder person come and say you inspire me it's like wow you know it was it was unbelievable so and um i was very fortunate for that because my idols were you know those of like muhammad ali's and sugar ray leonard's and jack johnson's people who really stood for things outside the ring and you know i always wanted to have a story where or i want always to be in a position to where i can you know, have that same feeling and give back in that way. So it was just different because I was a cancer survivor, you know, and um, a lot of people throughout the world deal and battle with cancer on a daily basis, whether themselves or family members, friends, whatever. And uh, I was a walking uh, hope, a symbol, a, a, I just was a miracle. And, you know, it, I started a foundation where I started helping kids with cancer and uh, I started to continue to excel in my boxing career and um, started to, you know, do different motivational speaks with thousands of people throughout the world. So I really started to thrive not only in my sport of boxing, but uh, becoming the person and the man that I always dreamed to be, which was someone who can touch you know, the people and be the people's champion. So, um, you know, currently I'm still uh, in the in the high ranks of the uh, now super middleweight division and I'm still striving and, you know, I'm still uh, one of the top, top athletes and fighters uh, in the sport of boxing. So... Um, yeah, and I'm just going to continue to do what I felt like my my destiny is, which was be the best person I can be, but not only that, touch as many people as I can with my story and with the wisdom that I've obtained throughout the years. You have a foundation that assists kids with hardships. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of expound on that a bit. Yeah. So the name of my foundation is called Get in the Ring Foundation. And what we do is we channel kids with uh, cancer uh, who have gone through a similar bully, uh, bullying uh, situation as I have. So we have bullying programs where kids can talk to uh, some of my therapists or we also have uh, health and nutrition as one of our focus. So three things. Uh, we, we help families with children with cancer. Uh, we have programs for kids that are dealing with bullying. And we also teach kids about fitness, health, and nutrition. So all of those things has kind of made up my life uh, and impacted my life. And that's why I uh, you know, focus on my foundation on those three things so and as i understand you have your own 
day. <laughs> yeah, I got my own day. <laughs> Tell me how that Crazy. came about. So I think it was about three years ago. It was the borough's president of Brooklyn. Uh, he did this big, big meeting, uh, not meeting, this ceremony at the Barclays Center where they had this this huge boxing event, but intermission. Uh, that's when I realized that they were uh, introducing me in front of all of the Brooklyn fans, uh, uh, my proclamation. And uh, it was stated that Daniel Jacobs has, on this day, Daniel, Daniel Jacobs, uh, which is April 22nd, 2018, I believe it was, um, this is your day. And you have this day because of all that you've done in the community, all that you've come back from, uh, all that you represent, and that you continue to do and inspire people throughout the world. So he allowed me to have that in front of all my Brooklyn fans, and it was wow. one of the best experiences. Uh, and I have my son there in the ring with me um, experiencing that whole situation. So it was just one of the best experiences ever. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that crazy. sounds really amazing. Mm. That is my story. Uh, my name is Daniel Jacobs two-time middleweight champion of the world and my message to the the world is never let anyone tell you that you aren't in control of your future that you aren't the dictator the sole dictator and of your future and the outcome is solely based on you so, peace and love to the world. God bless. <laughs> wow, what a powerful message. I like literally have chills, y'all. Thanks so much to Daniel for joining me for the second episode of The Wildcard Speaks, redefining the games you thought you knew. If any listeners have their own comeback tales, please send them to thewildcardspeaks at gmail.com and I'll read them aloud on the show. It's time to wrap things up with Kristen's Recovery Room. Since no one is playing right now, there isn't really any new injuries to talk about. So I'll just end the show by reiterating something Daniel said during his interview. To succinctly paraphrase, never believe you can't and never stop fighting. Thank you to everyone listening, liking, and sharing. Thank you to New York Bangers for the music. Email the Wildcard Speaks at thewildcardspeaks at gmail.com. This is a Zenletics Global Production.